0: The following message is by a guest speaker at Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org. Well, good morning. If you have your Bible, turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter five. It's okay if I stand here? Can everybody see me? Um, Let me just say it's been an honor and a privilege to be with you um, over the last few days and I've been blessed so much uh, during the worship times and the prayer times and excited to get to be a part of what God's done here and uh, excited to see what God continues to do through all of you. Last August, I had the opportunity to visit Rome, the Eternal City. Any of you here ever been to Rome? If you don't, if you haven't, you should go. Um, it's amazing. There's there's all kinds of things to see. In fact, on the first day, oh, am I changing to this one? Okay, thank you. The first day, we uh, we walked about 15 miles. One of uh, one of my friends had a step counter, and we walked all over the city looking at every landmark, taking pictures with every heap of stone, every pile of rubble just in case it was something. Went to the Colosseum, went to St. Peter's Basilica, saw the Sistine Chapel, saw all of these things, and it was like we, our eyes were wide with wonder the entire day at all of the history that we were seeing. But something happened over the course of that trip, because by day five, I had kind of got used to it. Got used to the fact, you know, in this country we say this is an old building. It's 100 years old. I mean, these things are thousands of years old. And somehow I got used to all of the wonder that was around me so that when somebody invited me, they said, you know what, we're going to go and we're going to watch the sunrise over the Tiber River while monks sing. And I said, you know, I think I'd just rather sleep in and go to a cafe. <laughs> Which I could have done here. But but something had happened to me, I had gotten used to the amazing because as humans we have this amazing capacity to acclimate to the amazing. For example, you live on a near perfect sphere that is spinning at a thousand miles an hour and speeding through space at Mach eighty seven. Running laps around a star that exists in a hurricane of stars called the Milky Way galaxy that itself is spinning like a top at 483,000 miles per hour. Isn't that amazing? Perhaps not. (laughs) Because we have this incredible capacity to acclimate to that which is amazing. And sadly, this propensity continues to afflict us when it comes to the most amazing thing of all. Grace. Grace somehow we have this capacity to get weary of the wonder, to become bored with the beauty, uh, to get used to grace, and to get stuck. Quote George MacDonald, but we who would be born again indeed, (laughs) this is going to work, I'll just walk over and press it. But we who would be born again indeed, he says, must wake our souls unnumbered times a day. Don't you just feel that? It's not just once that has to happen. You have to continually wake yourself up. An awakening is not just something that happened one time long ago, but it's something that happens unnumbered times throughout the day. Well, the writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of people who suffered from this uh, malady. And so in the midst of this marvelous sermonic letter about the supremacy of Christ, he he stops in the middle of chapter 5 to diagnose their dullness. And this is where we pick it up in chapter 5, verse 11. This is what he has to say. He says, about this we have much to say. let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, And have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned that we speak in this way yet in your case beloved we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation for god is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is God's word. So in this passage, the writer of Hebrews is diagnosing the dullness of his readers. He says, by this time, you ought to be teaching this class. And yet you need someone to tell you the same things over and over again. You're stuck on this low level of development. It's on this low level you have become, he says, dull of hearing. It's like a person who's been a Christian for 10 years, but they don't have 10 years of Christian experience. They have one year repeated 10 times. One year repeated 10 times. Why is it that I continue to see this trajectory? Why does it seem like people are so passionate about God in high school and college and in their 20s and as you settle into your 30s and 40s that so many people seem to become so safe and stable and stagnant? Why do I see this trajectory in my own heart? What do we do with our dullness? What do we do when we feel that we maybe have become dull of hearing. So let's get this diagnosis clear. This is a condition called spiritual dullness. You know what, I think I'm going to move my stand over here so that I can advance the slides. Is that okay? All right. Spiritual dullness. Spiritual dullness is a condition of the soul when your faith fails to move forward. Just like on Friday night we talked about spiritual fatness, when our education exceeds our obedience, now the writer of Hebrews is telling us about uh, this developmental disorder called spiritual dullness, when your faith fails to move forward. It's a condition in which when the things that moved you so profoundly now seem less compelling, a condition in which praying just seems dull, in which scripture has lost its sweetness and nothing tastes For we who have grown dull of hearing, who struggle with this condition of the soul, here is God's message for us today. Spiritual dullness exposes our immaturity. Spiritual dullness exposes our immaturity. The diagnosis is a developmental disorder, immaturity. But the gospel awakens us to go on and to grow up. In grace. The remedy is to grow up in the gospel. And I want to develop this in three movements today. It's kind of a framework that as I as I look at faith development. A framework for what does faith development look like. As you move through different stages. So here are the three movements of the sermon today. First we see a movement of childish faith. Which is marked by trusting. And then we see a movement of experiential faith. Which is marked by tasting. And then finally we see a movement of maturing faith, which is marked by training. So we have trusting that grows into a trusting that's marked by tasting that then should grow into a tasting, trusting, marked by training. Let's take the first one. What I'm trying to do here in these first two points is to build a theological frame because the most important thing for us will be the third movement. But we have to build this theological frame before we put the devotional in it. So if you'll bear with me, we'll do the theology first before the devotional. First, the good of childish faith. The writer of Hebrews says, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Now notice that the author doesn't say here that it's evil for an infant to prefer milk, only that it's unskilled, unsophisticated, and immature. A child's faith is good, but it's immature because when you're a child, you believe things on the basis of testimony and authority. You believe because that's what your parents believe. And and there's nothing wrong with that. That's normal. You believe things because your pastor tells you them. You, You don't believe because you've thought through the cosmological argument or because you've studied all the scriptures Yourself, you believe innocently because somebody told you it was so, and because you haven't had any reason to believe otherwise, and that's fine. That's basic childish faith. And it's real faith, or at least it can be, or can grow into real faith. You know, as in my time as a youth pastor, I heard a lot of testimonies from church kids. And it's always funny how church kids have to come up with some kind of testimony that shows a before you know, before they came to Christ. And so a lot of times in their efforts to, to have a compelling testimony, they'll denigrate their childhood faith. Uh, they'll say things like, you know, I came to church, but I didn't understand anything. I uh, just came for my friends. I came to play football. I, I sang the songs, but they didn't mean anything. And then I got to youth group, and then I really became a Christian. That makes youth pastors feel great and children's pastors not feel so great. But I think if you grew up in church, you should praise God for that. Praise God that that's part of your story. There's something beautiful about the faith of a child. My children don't struggle for faith. They simply believe. I do this basic catechism with them and I ask them, Ben, why did God make you? And he says, so that he could love me, know me, and enjoy me. And every time he says that, there's something that moves in my heart. There's something about the faith of a child that is beautiful. And as we look at scripture, what we see is that children are actually celebrated, aren't they? They're held up as examples of faith, of humility, dependence on God. Remember the story when the disciples are all arguing about being great. And what does Jesus do? He takes a child and puts them in the midst and said, if you want to, if you want to even enter in the kingdom of heaven, you have to become like this. So no matter how old you are, there are some childlike things out of which you must never grow. Humility, dependence, simple faith, wonder, curiosity, unself-consciousness. You want to be great, Jesus says, become like a child again. But not in every way. Because while the Bible holds up certain admirable characteristics of children, it also says that there are childish ways that need to be left behind. 1 Corinthians 13.11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I understood like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I put childish things behind me. 1 Corinthians 14.20, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In other words, think things through. Trust simply, but not simplistically. Ephesians 4 says that the goal is that we would no longer be like children, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but that we would be mature, not easily tricked, not easily led astray, not easily manipulated. It's really easy for me to trick my kids. And the goal is not to be tricked, not to be led astray, but to move with purpose and direction. And then we have this passage where the author is clearly frustrated with his reader's failure to grow up. So we see that a childish faith can be genuine, but it is immature. It's not enough. A spiritual infant is unskilled in the word of righteousness. It's innocent. It hasn't reckoned with the complexities of experience. And so the goal is not to uproot childish faith. The goal is not to uproot childish faith, but to nourish it. So it can grow into something new and vital, a faith that can weather the storms of life of adolescence and adulthood. This is the good of childish faith. This brings us to the second movement, the gift of experiential faith. This is a period of tasting, marked by tasting. It's marked by and defined by emotion, experience, and encounter. Notice that the writer of Hebrews' main metaphors here are food metaphors. I can relate to that. Food metaphors. You, you need meat. You need, you need milk, and you should be eating meat. In fact, in chapter 6, as we read on, he specifically invokes this language of tasting. He speaks of those who have tasted of the heavenly gift, who have tasted of the powers of the age to come. And this language is almost certainly drawn from Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Especially if you grow up in church, the metaphor of tasting is important. Because if in childhood you believe things on the basis of testimony and authority, as you grow older you have this need to experience things for yourself. To move from simple trust to taste. And scripture affirms for us that it's not enough just to believe things intellectually. As important as that is, there's this experiential component as well. There's this verse in 1 Peter where it says, that, that part of our development as Christians is the development of a taste for God. Like newborn infants, he says, long for pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And this reflected an ancient baptism liturgy. When somebody would get baptized, they would give them a cup of milk with honey mixed in. And the milk was representative of the fact that, that there was this taste that they had, this hunger for God, that they would long for the pure spiritual milk of the word. And the honey was a reminder that they had tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Trust must grow into a a trust that is marked by taste. Tasting, experiencing God. Imagine two people who want to know what a strawberry is. And the first person studies it scientifically, puts it under a microscope, weighs it, measures it, and looks up all of the stuff, all of the research about strawberries. And he knows now what a strawberry is. But does he know He does not, because in order to know what a strawberry is, you must taste it. And the second man, even if he hasn't studied it scientifically, even if he doesn't know that it's a soft seed-studded fruit, uh, he tastes it. And in tasting, he has a deeper knowledge of what that strawberry is than the one who knows all of the facts in the world. Trusting must grow into tasting Or at least a trusting marked by tasting. Have you tasted? This is a call that the call to know God is not just a call to know things about him, but to taste. But according to the writer of Hebrews, even that is not enough. Because in this passage, the author's point is that tasting by itself is not sufficient. It makes all the difference in the world what direction your taste buds lead you. And now we must deal with the strong warning found in verses 4 through 8. And remember that the overall point in this passage is the exhortation to move on to maturity. The exhortation to move on to maturity. Let us go on to maturity in verse 3. But implicit in this exhortation is this very strong warning One of the strongest warnings in the Bible. One of the strongest warnings that this author gives. And implicit in this warning is this question that it's possible to have emotional experiences of God. It's it's possible to be with God's covenant community and yet turn your back on all that you have tasted and seen. And the author wants them to ask the question, if you do not want to go on, if you do not want to move forward, if you do not want to grow up in grace, if you are satisfied with dullness, if you are satisfied with this very low level, if you have contented yourself with complacency, he wants you to hear this strong warning. He says that land that often drinks up all of the water that comes into it, but it brings forth thorns, There is something fundamentally wrong with that land. If you're here and and there is no desire to go on, to grow up, to move forward, if you've contented yourself with a very low level of spiritual vitality, if you don't even want to want, you need to hear this warning. It's a real warning. And that's why it's here. That you would hear it if you do not want to move away from spiritual dullness. And yet, with a strong warning comes words of comfort in verse 9. He says, We are persuaded, or though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. In other words, Spiritual dullness does not mean that you've fallen away as long unless you've become satisfied with sluggishness, contented yourself with complacency, and have turned your back on what you've tasted and seen. We must go on. We must continue to grow. And if we don't, there's something wrong. If all of the rain of God's blessing that has fallen on us is not bringing forth any kind of fruit other than thorns, There's something wrong with that land. It's reflective of a heart that has not been awakened. A heart that has not been transformed. But if you hear this, if you hear this call from Hebrews, let us go on to maturity and something deep in your soul says, yes, yes, I want to go on, Lord. I want to grow up. I want to keep on growing up into salvation. My desire may be so weak, but I want to want... I hunger to hunger again. I may not feel God, but I feel longing for Him. And hear the words, of the second second half of chapter 6. Things that belong to salvation, he says, we feel sure of better things, that there are better things that can be expected, things that belong to salvation. There's hope that you can go on, that you can... Be set free from your sluggishness and continue to go forward and go up in grace. See, here's the situation of the readers as nearly as I can tell. As we read the book of Hebrews, we see that they've had some powerful experiences of of God's grace and God's presence and they believed in Jesus. And their newfound faith was potent, uh, potent enough to make them overflow in generosity and endure harsh temptation that included the seizing of their property. And yet, as the struggle wore on, they began to grow weary. The truths of the gospel grew familiar to them. They didn't seem as powerful as before, especially because these struggles just did not seem to let up. And so they began to slow down and to shrink back and to look for an easier path. And so the writer of Hebrews writes to them to remind them of the beauty of Jesus and to call them to deeper discipleship. Don't be satisfied with dullness. Don't be satisfied with sluggishness. Look at Jesus again, the author and finisher of your faith, and run the race that is set before you. That's the book of Hebrews. And so what is it that must ultimately be added to our trusting and our tasting? Well, the answer is training. And here we, we talk about the groans of a maturing faith. The groans of a maturing faith. Growing pains. Verse 14 of chapter 5 says that solid food is for the mature. Watch this. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Look at those words. Powers of discernment are trained by constant practice. Now remember that the point of this passage is not that there is anything wrong with a child's love of simple foods that are easy to eat nor is it that there's anything wrong with experiential tasting. The point is that if a child or an adolescent never grows beyond satisfaction with basic things, then the child's development is in a fundamental way stunted, stuck in immaturity. In the same way, God's desire for each of us is to train us, is to train our hearts so that we can run that race that has been set before us. His desire is that we would grow up, develop spiritual teeth, spiritual taste for solid food, not just milk. You know, it's funny with my kids as, as they've grown up, it's funny to see them as they transition between the different stages of eating. You know, for a while they just eat out of, they drink out of the bottle, right? And they just go for it. And then you give them a sippy cup and they want to use it the same way as a bottle, Right, They suck on it again and again and again, but it doesn't work that way. And then they replace the sippy cup with with another cup. And in each case, if you try to drink from the cup the way you did before, you won't get as much. And you want to tell them, oh, it's okay. Don't suck on it so hard. If you just pour it back and use gravity, you'll get so much more. But so often we get fixated on the way that things happened before. On the way that we experienced God before and we try to go back when God wants us to go forward. That's what he was doing then. This is what he's doing now. He wants you to move forward. Go on and grow up. John Coe's work on spiritual formation has been really helpful to me here. Coe writes that when we first begin to experience God, like infants in our immaturity, we become attached to the wrong things. Good things, just not the most important things. We may become attached, for example, to the intense emotions that we feel, Uh, the feelings of being loved, the release of being forgiven, the pleasure of losing yourself in intense singing. And our sense of God's presence is strong, but our character is really still weak because there hasn't been time for the Spirit to transform us fully. And yet, in the beginning, God meets us right there. He meets us where we are in our need for experiential affirmation. Just like newborn infants, when we first awaken to Christ, God gives us like this bottle of spiritual pleasure to fuel our early growth. This is a gift. Experiential faith is this great gift of God, but God is not ultimately interested in us being dependent on our emotional experience of him. Did you get that? That it's a gift that God has given to you. But if we're not careful, we fixate on the gift of experiential faith rather than on the giver and what the giver is doing now. And we think that God is only doing something if we're feeling it and experiencing it and feeling that sense of fullness. But God is always doing something. He's never doing nothing. He is always at work. Whether you feel his presence or whether you feel his absence, God is doing something But as long as we're fixated on spiritual highs, we will squeeze every sermon, every prayer time, every Bible study, looking for that particular experience and never look at our hearts. I've worked with a lot of teenagers and young adults, and for many of them, feeling God is like a security blanket. And they always are trying to get back to how they felt before, before things went dull. And according to Hebrews, this is a sign of immaturity. It's rejecting meat because it doesn't taste like milk. Spitting out something better because it doesn't come out of a bottle. Maybe there are some of you who are here and perhaps you have never really experienced the grace of God. You've not gone from this trusting to tasting. And my my hope is that, that you would. But I would be willing to wager that more of us in this room are feeling spiritually dull because we have somewhere along the line become fixated on tasting and have not embraced God's design and desire for our training. See, we think that training is for the sake of tasting. But tasting is meant to fuel and serve the training, which is God's spirit transforming us to be more like Jesus. Remember the quote, we who would be born again indeed must wake our souls unnumbered times a day. And maybe you're like these Hebrews. Maybe you could point to experiences that you've had in the past where you went from trusting to tasting when God felt so real, so near, you felt so alive, and now those experiences seem so far away. Things feel cold, they feel dry, they feel dull. And in the face of that struggle, which is a real struggle with With boredom, with apathy, with emptiness, you begin to wonder if this is real and you begin to look for an easier path. You may even think that God has abandoned you. But the truth is, if we believe God's word, the truth is that God is still so near, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, Regardless of whether you sense my presence or absence, I am with you always to the very end of the age. God is still so near and he's calling you to a deeper level of discipleship. He's saying you're ready. You're ready to not be so dependent on milk and to start to learn to eat meat. You're ready to not be so dependent on your feelings and to start standing on my promises. And perhaps what you are experiencing as a burden, God intends as a blessing. God is calling you to grow up in grace and growth at this stage means groaning because God is taking the bottle away. And the feelings that once came so freely begin to dry up. But here's what happens when that happens. When they do, when the feelings have dried up, you begin to see your heart for what it really is. You read the word and you... Feel nothing. And now you are beginning to experience how little you actually love the word. God's spirit is showing it to you. You pray and your mind wanders to everything else. And what it's wandering to is all of the things you care about. Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. God is showing you your heart. It is a gift to show us our emptiness so that we would deepen our hunger for Christ the only one who can fill us. So what do you do with your moments of dullness? Do you beat yourself up? Do you try to stir up artificial feelings? Do you give up? Or do you look up? Say, God, thank you for showing me my heart. Thank you for showing me how much I still need to be transformed. Thank you for showing me how deeply I need Christ. Spiritual dullness exposes our immaturity. The gospel awakens us to grow up in grace. And this training process can be painful. And you can only go through it if you're holding on to the promise that because, that because of Jesus Christ, God is with you and for you. And this is exactly what God is trying to do. This is the point of the training. To move our confidence from our perception of his presence to his promises. To move us from being dependent on the subjectivity of our experience of him to the objectivity of his action in Christ. The way that you know God loves you is not because you feel it all the time. It's amazing when you feel it. It's a gift when you feel it. It fuels your growth when you feel it. But the way that you, it's not not the ground of God's love for you. The ground of God's love for you is that Jesus came and suffered and died on the cross for your sins. If you would ever doubt God's love for you, look at the cross. If you would ever doubt God's heart for you, look at the cross. This is the ground of knowing that you're loved by God, valued by God, that you belong to him. The ground of your hope is not wishful thinking that things could get better. It's the fact that the tomb is empty. That happened. And it can never unhappen. This, according to 1 Peter 1, is the ground of our hope. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's objective. That happened. Irrespective of how I feel. Irrespective of my feelings. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. If I was dependent on my feelings, it would be like, He loves me, He loves me not. He loves me, He loves me not. If I was was dependent on my circumstances, it would be, He loves me, He loves me not. But no, I go to the Word to awaken me because Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. These are His promises. God cannot lie let every man be found a liar and he would still be found true. And we come to the word to awaken our hearts a number of times a day because if we don't stand on his promises, we stand on our feelings and it's like building our house on shifting sand. God wants us to grow from squeezing every experience for a spiritual high to setting our hope steadfastly on who he has promised to be for us. As the verse says, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The promises. That's the ground of being able to grow up. Being able to go on. Many of us get stuck because we misinterpret the absence of our feelings for the absence of God absence of our feelings is not the absence of God. It's God showing us our hearts in a new way. Showing us the work that needs to be done. Showing us all the places where our character still needs to be transformed. And you can only go through that process if you are convinced in the bottom of your soul that God is with you and for you. So that when you don't feel anything, you still know, God is with me. God is for me, irrespective of how I feel. I can go on, I can stop being sluggish and be one of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I can run with perseverance because I see Jesus, the author and the perfecter of my faith. I see him. I'm almost done. I'll just say something that I've learned. Spiritual maturity, spiritual vitality is a funny thing. I certainly don't claim to have achieved it. I love what the Heidelberg Catechism says. It says, even the holiest men while in this life have only a small beginning in obedience. Only a small beginning in obedience. But here's what I've learned. There are no shortcuts to a mature faith. You can't get it from reading a book by John Calvin or from listening to a sermon by John Piper, you can't get it from a prayer time at the International House of Prayer. You can't get it from advanced degrees in theology, or from listening to or preaching a hundred sermons. I've tried all of these things. There's no silver bullet. These things help; they build faith, but there's no secret recipe, no shortcut to maturity. Spiritual vitality is hard won. It's the fruit of training, of constant practice and distinguishing between good and evil. Saying no to sin. Saying yes to Jesus because I trust his promise to be with me and for me. Sanctification. Character transformation. Growing up into salvation is an agonizingly slow process sometimes. I had a student that I met with the other day who's thinking about ministry and he was asking me, what are the hardest things about being in ministry? And I said, one of the hardest things is the slowness of change. Not so much in the people that you are serving, but in yourself. The slowness of change in my heart. And I say, man, if, if their best hope is to be like me, they are in big trouble. But that's not their best hope. Their best hope is that the Holy Spirit is conforming them to the image of Jesus Christ. And even though sanctification can be so agonizingly slow, it continues to happen as the Spirit trains our hearts to be satisfied with something better than good feelings. But we who would be born again indeed must wake our souls unnumbered times a day. Where are the times in your day when you're waking your soul again and again? You're taking out the word and saying, My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. My soul melts for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. I have gone astray as a lost sheep. Seek your servant. We who would be born again indeed must wake our souls unnumbered times a day. Because if we don't, we lapse into dullness, into sluggishness. We forget his promises and we focus on our perception of his presence. Spiritual dullness exposes our immaturity. The gospel awakens our hearts to grow up and to go on into grace. If you're here and your heart has been exposed, if you're seeing that God has been trying to show you your heart and you've just been turning away, then by all means, look at what he's showing you. God's word is meant to be a mirror to show us ourselves. But at some point, God's word must stop becoming a mirror and become a window through which you look And you see Christ. It is a mirror. We see ourselves. But that's not the main goal of scripture. It's meant to be a window. Through which we look. And we see Jesus Christ. Jesus in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. Jesus who gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Who is at all times working to train us in righteousness. Look at Jesus, lift up your head, lift up your heart. God is with you, God is for you. He's the author and finisher of your faith. You can go on. You can grow up into salvation. You don't have to stay dull. Let's pray together. Almighty Father, you know how we struggle. And here we are in our weakness, we are falling before your throne. Confessing that we are weak, but you are strong. We are weak, but you are strong. It's amazing how those songs that we learned in our childhood so many times have such meaning beyond what we knew. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak. But he is strong. To know that even though we are very small, Very little. That our significance comes not from our size, but the fact that we belong to you, body and soul, in life and in death, to you, our faithful Savior. You who have paid for all of our sins with your precious blood and have set us free from the tyranny of the devil. You who watch over us in such a way that not a hair can fall from our heads, except by the will of our Father in heaven. So that by your Spirit, all things are working together for our good may we not become satisfied with our dullness may we press on further up and further in may we go on, grow up into grace the grace that is always deeper than our depravity always more impressive than our sins or our accomplishments we want to see Jesus we want to look at him as the author and finisher of our faith have our hearts awakened again and again to grow up, to go on, to train our powers of discernment by constant practice to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. Yes to the one who has said yes to us in his life and death and resurrection. We are yours. We belong to you. We offer ourselves to you pray all this in Jesus' name.